Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, a podcast that were it a pie chart, it'd be one-third politics, one-third comedy and one-third missing because I can't resist a pie. This is episode 104, I'm Tin and Duyeb, and this week I'm concerned that with the Conservatives being accused of Islamophobia and Labour still tackling issues with anti-Semitism, are the Lib Dems going to get all shitty towards Buddhists or Christians? Personally, I'm hoping they go all out against Buddhism and start campaigning for mindlessness, a middle ground instead of a higher one, and have a slogan that goes, not Zen, but when. The Muslim Council of Britain, an often controversial umbrella body, which is a phrase I always assume means is someone with a very thin torso and legs and a massive head, sorry, is an umbrella body for 500 Muslim associations, mosques and schools in Britain, and they have called for an independent inquiry into increasing Islamophobia in the Conservative Party. Now, I don't know if that actually needs an inquiry, but only because that would be like spending millions of pounds and hours of time on checking if the sky is still blue, or if Health Secretary and Big Bird's withered brother, Jeremy Hunt, has an inner monologue that is just the song Popcorn played on loop. In recent weeks, a Conservative Council candidate for Lewisham said that Islam is the new Nazism, which is so wrong for many, many reasons, but I'm also sadly sure that if the majority of Muslims were white and acted more like fascists, then they'd probably have a better image in our media and with potential Tory councillors. Weeks before that, a Conservative Enfield Party candidate posted pictures on Facebook of bacon on a door handle as a way of protecting your house from terrorism, which makes me really hope he volunteers as a minesweeper covered in just a series of deli meats for safety. And who remembers Zach Goldsmith's dog whistle campaign for London Mayor? That's right, Zach Goldsmith does, which on the plus side now gives him an answer if people ask him why the long face. Man regularly in danger of being sat on and incubated by a broody bird, Sajid Javid, said that there wasn't a problem with Islamophobia in the Conservatives because he, a man who has previously said he doesn't practice any religion, is Home Secretary. Great. He's essentially saying the Tory policy on Islamophobia is a new version of some of my best friends are black people, only they're actually saying one of our friends has a black father-in-law, and even then what they're actually really saying is Javid could be Muslim, but he isn't. Phew! And he mostly wants to deport any black friends he has. Javid did state that the Muslim Council doesn't represent Muslims in Britain because they have had favourable comments on extremists, which is true, and they've also had some fairly dodgy views on homosexuality and the Holocaust in the past as well. So if anything, they probably represent certain factions of the Conservative Party way better than British Muslims, so Javid should really listen to their concerns before they write slogans on buses or something. Javid also revealed plans this week for MI5 to share information on people suspected of having terrorist sympathies. Again, if he means people who call others infidels or traitors for not subscribing to their stringent belief system, then that's a whole chunk of Conservative Brexiteers and the Daily Mail in a lot of trouble. The Home Secretary said last year's attack on London Bridge showed the need for wider and more local information, but you know, it obviously wasn't urgent or they'd have done it 12 months ago. The Home Secretary said there must be no safe spaces for terror suspects anywhere, you know, apart from all the UK banks and property used for money laundering that the government still won't tackle. Key data is going to be shared between neighbourhood police, even though there aren't any of those left, councils, even though they haven't got the money or resources to do anything with the information, and the Charity Commission, because hey, what greater crowdfunding prize option could you want? If you spend £10, you'll have even less chance of being blown up, but for 20 we'll mention you on the news if you do. Meanwhile, US President and only person to look both tanned and not well at the same time, Donald Trump, has imposed steel tariffs on the EU, probably because of jealousy at his own severe lack of metal. 
There is now a 25% duty on European steel going into the US, so much better to buy it in the airport before you leave, and a 10% duty on European aluminium, which is fine because the US only buy European aluminium anyway. Disgraced MP Liam the Disgraced Fox has said that those tariffs are illegal, and if anyone knows about dodgy policies, it's him. This does hugely ruin Fox's Brexit narrative that leaving the EU means we can get special deals with the US. Not least now our Prime Minister and only person constructed with chicken wire, Theresa May, was previously known as the Steel Lady, so now she won't be able to get through US customs on a diplomatic visit without coughing up. Which, to be fair, is her area of expertise anyway. The other Brexit plans which have gone awry, a phrase that you can cut and paste from this show and just repeat before every plan every week for the past two years, is the solution to the Irish border. As Brexit Secretary and trapped fart David Davis suggested a 10-mile-wide buffer zone that gives Northern Ireland joint EU and UK status all at once. But then he retracted that idea when he realised it wouldn't work. I feel a bit like David Davis is wasted in the Cabinet when he could be employed by TV production companies to pitch to commissioners before they do, so anything that they present afterwards seems like like a really good idea. Meanwhile, senior advisers have drawn up plans for a no-deal doomsday Brexit, which would mean that Britain would be hit with shortages of medicine, fuel and food within two weeks. On the plus side, it does mean many of us won't make it to week three and therefore will finally have to stop hearing about fucking Brexit. Back in the US, Trump has pardoned Conservative commentator Dinesh D'Souza, a man that pled guilty to fraud and was subsequently charged, but who Donald says was treated unfairly by the government because, as you know, in Trump's eyes, it's only fraud if you don't get away with it, and there's every chance that even though D'Souza pleaded guilty and it's on record, that Trump has refused to look it up, so therefore it doesn't exist. Next up, he plans to pardon Martha Stewart, who was arrested for conspiracy, and Rod Blagovich, who was jailed for corruption. Pretty certain after that will be Bernie Madoff after Trump claims he was within his rights to try and make a quick buck. Trump solicitors have threatened Robert Mueller that as president, Trump could pardon himself from the investigation into Russian interference in the election. But of course, we all know that turkeys only get pardoned at Thanksgiving. First Lady Melania has now not been seen for 24 days and it's been announced that she won't be attending the G7 summit with her husband. Many are concerned that Trump has had her deported, but I believe that she is just proving that she's indeed a voice for the women of America that echoes their cries to be as far away from Donald as possible. Lastly, an anti-Putin Russian journalist who is reported to have been shot dead in the Ukraine showed up to a press conference to say that his murder was faked to foil an assassination plot against him. Damn, that is the smartest journalism I've ever heard of. I mean, that's two headline pieces straight up, and if he was really savvy, an obituary all in the bag in a week. Oh, and MP and woman who is for Brighton what the Ravens are to the Tower of London, Caroline Lucas, has stepped down as co-leader of the Green Party. Instead, Sean Berry is running for election with Jonathan Bartley, who's running again for co-leader after working with Lucas beforehand. I love how with the Greens, even their leader candidates have to be part recycled. Good work. Yeah! Hello! And that was the audio attempt to start this show like a comedy gig. Uh, yeah, I thought I'd give that a go. So many gigs do this kind of offstage introduction and then they play big thumping music like what you're about to witness is basically Game of Thrones on stage and then what walks out is someone like me going, hello, and then everyone just starts the night really disappointed. It is always fun. Um, hello to you in this cloudy, cloudy, grey, miserable June because we can't have nice things anymore. But hopefully you can have this hopefully nice podcast. And a big hello to all you new subscribers and listeners. I am not sure where you've come from, but you are very, very welcome uh, wherever it may be. Um, this show usually has a dip in half term, which was last week, uh, probably due to all of you either being teachers or having kids or trying your best to avoid kids or secretly living in a school and only having the one week to run around before you have to hide in a cupboard again and become all vitamin D deficient. But last week, numbers only dipped a wee bit because there are more of you. And obviously, some of you lot don't live in a school cupboard. So uh, there's a sign that the housing bubble's going to pop soon. It's very nice to know. Um, big thanks to all you lot anyway. And also a uh, special thanks to Dee and to Steve for donating to the Patreon this past week, which is hugely lovely of you. Um, I'm now only $76 away from the $200 target I set two years ago. Yeah goals and dreams. Um, if you do have even one dollar uh, that you can donate each month, then please please do at patreon.com forward slash parpolebro, as it does hugely help me make this show better uh, in that I then don't have to do other work instead of this, uh, which sounds ridiculous. I'm basically saying please let me stay at home and do my writing instead of elsewhere, but if you'd heard the noises that my daughter was making today, if anything, it's, it's probably torture. Um, one dollar is currently worth 75p, uh, and that is the cost of cheeseburger-flavoured super noodles in Asda, and at least if you give one dollar to this show instead of buying that um, it won't make you violently ill and it doesn't smell of a child sick I mean 
I smell of a child sick pretty much constantly now, but you can't smell that through the podcast just yet. I'm sure the next iPhone will bring that feature in um, at some point soon, but until then, you're quite safe. Um, if $1 a month is too much and you'd like to do a one-off, then please buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash bro. And apparently, I can now change the option of coffee to other foodstuffs uh, if I like, but coffee is still desperately needed, and I feel if I put iced coffee in there, you'd be even less inclined to donate. Um, if you can't donate at all, that is also very good, but please give the show a review on iTunes or Stitcher or Podbean or somewhere and apparently iTunes is now working again even though it definitely wasn't um, I searched for about an hour and I found an email to contact Apple and after two days someone called Wesley replied and basically said are you an idiot do you know how to look at the screen properly and I replied yes and I put screenshots and then they panicked and then a senior advisor called Julian replied and said I'm a senior advisor and I'm dealing with your case now and then he sort of said oh all of this is probably not our fault uh, and then he said all of you listeners have to contact them individually if you're having issues uh, and then I swore at my computer and I went for a walk. You're welcome. Um, speaking of reviews, uh, thank you to whoever gave the very nice review on Podbean last week. I don't have a Podbean account, so I can't see names. But the review said, very topical, very funny. Thank you, anonymous person. But then it said, shame about the gratuitous profanities littered throughout the podcasts. Now, uh, totally fair, and I thought I'd just address this on the podcast, because it is totally fair if you don't like swears. And if any of you have listened to this show from the very beginning, I think I did manage about four clean episodes. Uh, I think episodes one to four are clean uh, before I totally caved in and started effing and jeffing all over the shop. Um, and I thought I'd give you a reason for that, uh, which is partly because I like swears. Um, I think they're both big and clever, uh, especially when used properly, which I hope I do. And I very much put them in where I think they should go rather than trying to litter them. And I'm sorry if that's the impression that I give, that I'm just littering swears all over the shop like a terrible awful sweary litter bug. Um, I always subscribe to Billy Connolly's saying of there's no such thing as a bad word, just bad use of a good word. But also I find that with current politics I'm really not sure how to express my feelings about much of it without swearing um, as so much of it is currently a festering sack of feckless pig shittery. So I have to use terms like that because it feels right for now and hence the little E for explicit on all podcast apps uh, that you know next to this title. Maybe in five years time when we're all living in a dystopian hellscape I'll be too tired for swears so that they'll disappear. Um, or, you know, in a, hopefully we'll just have a nicer situation. I won't need to swear, but who knows? Fair comment for you to make. And if more of you would like a swear-free version of this show, please drop me a line via the partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk website contact page and let me know. Uh, or you can drop me a line at partlypoliticalbroadcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Talking of swear-free politics comedy things, uh, the kids' show that I have co-written with Tutton Spiller from simplepolitics.co.uk starts its mini-tour on June the 16th at the Farnham Maltings. Um, it's called How Does This Politics Thing Work Then? And it is a swear-free, non-partisan, gag-filled explanation of how Parliament and democracy works. Uh, it's totally suitable for kids age 7 plus and their families, and it's got a joke about a centaur in it and a mock election and lots of stuff like that. It's really, really good fun. I'm really excited about it. Um, we're at Farnham on the 16th at the Maltings, then Underbelly Festival on Southbank uh, in London on June the 17th, uh, Arts at the Old Fire Station at the Offbeat Festival Oxford on June the 23rd, the Chipping Norton Theatre on June the 30th, the Whitsable Umbrella on July the 28th, and the Stable Spiegel Tent in Milton Keynes on July the 29th. Um, there are more dates after that, and we've actually just got some dates booked in for next year as well, but I will plug them on this show nearer the time. Um, if you have children, please come along. Uh, you can grab tickets at the various venues' websites. Oh, and lastly, I know that last week's episode was oddly quiet for those of you that listened to it straight away team alpha purple broads um if you did listen to it on tuesday wednesday thursday i have no idea uh, what happened i'm guessing maybe just a little bit shy um the great team at acast fixed it and i put up a new version by the end of last week and this week i'm making the episode so loud that your ears will cry so that you can then turn it down because apparently that's better people have told me um let me know your volume preferences anyway if you like you can email me with the exact digital volume number that you like to hear it at and I'll try and program it in accordance. However, I don't want to ruin your enjoyment of this show by deafening you so you can't hear any podcasts after just three weeks of this but at the same time, uh, this isn't a John Cage tribute show, uh, though sometimes I wish it was as the writing would be super easy. So hopefully this week will be right. Um, on this week's show, I interview Ellen Lees at We Own It, the campaign for public ownership and renationalisation. Plus, there is some stuff about Italy because occasionally it's nice to know that other countries are completely fucked as well. Sorry, completely sugared. No way, that sounds really tasty and not really a bad thing. Hmm. Anyway, look, because it was a quietish week and Parliament was in recess, let's start with a little bit of this. Brexit 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 
There's not a lot of actually substantial Brexit news this week, which again is a phrase you can cut and paste from this week's show and just use every week. And that's because the EU withdrawal bill isn't heading back to Parliament till June the 12th. Yes, the day next week's podcast will come out, rendering it immediately out of date. Hooray! And it could also be a day where MPs vote on up to 15 amendments that the Lords voted for and now the government want to remove. Yes, weeks have passed and all that is likely to happen is that all the things that did happen will now unhappen. Brilliant! It's like if Samuel Beckett played ping pong. What is likely to happen is that by the end of those 15 votes, we might, and yes, I used likely before then saying might, because it's Brexit, and so odds that anything will happen are actually lower than this sentence ending with a good betting analogy when I know absolutely nothing about gambling. So, it's likely that we might have a solution to which option the Prime Minister will choose for the UK's customs deal with the EU in future. Though, the rumours that say this suggest it'll be a customs partnership until the technology is developed, at which point it'll be max fac. So that's one option that can't happen, followed years later by the other option that can't happen. Ah, it'll be so nice to have something finally decided, right? The other Brexit news, and I should add that I'm not going to talk about David Davis's Irish border plans anymore as they're too stupid. I feel like we're just days away from him saying out loud, what about if we draw a picture of a border and just send everyone a copy and they could look at it at some point between the Republic and Northern Ireland? So I'm not going to look at that and I'm not going to look at the doomsday no Brexit possibilities because as far as I'm concerned, it's all doomsday. And the other news, apart from that and that and Trump showing that we can't really cash all our chips on a good deal with the US when the croupier is still trying to eat the chips on the table. The other news is, well, well, it's rubbish. It's rubbish news. It's not good news this week. A major Tory donor, Crispin O'Day, a man whose name makes it sound like he's an old folk song about making french fries, has urged for the Conservatives to replace Theresa May with wattle face Michael Gove because he doesn't believe the Prime Minister can carry Brexit through. No, neither do I, Crispin. In fact, I think she'll barely push it through with her nose while crawling on the floor, insisting she's up on her feet and in control. However, the only reason I could feasibly see that you'd want to swap her with Gove is because he'd ignore experts even more and just leave without thinking anything through. But then saying that, there's just as big a chance that he'd stab all the Leave voters in the back and then suddenly decide to remain. It's swapping predictably shit careerist with unpredictably shit careerist. O'Day has said the European Union are not good at hitting a moving ball, but the problem is Theresa May is not good at hitting a moving ball either. Great, so instead let's have Gove, a man who looks like a moving ball has hit him repeatedly in the face by accident while he insists through broken teeth that actually it's his skillful defending all along. Oh, and lastly, Lord Lawson, chair of the Vote Leave campaign, and only man in the world who looks like he's wearing a loose-fitting rubber mask of his own face, has applied for French residency. Many have called it hypocrisy, but I'd argue that he's just proving that Brexit is indeed removing the people who are damaging British values after all. You'd be forgiven if over the last few weeks, nay months, okay, years, you'd begun to assume that the job of the UK rail industry was actually to derail people's lives. Govia Thameslink Railway and Northern are being super efficient right now at running a cancellation service, pleasing all those customers who just love spending absurd amounts of money to uncomfortably stand on a station platform, staring into the mid-distance wondering what they've done to deserve this before getting on a bus. Meanwhile, Southern Rail continued to operate like a surgeon using a pneumatic drill to perform a craniotomy. Though on the plus side, if they were your doctor and that's what you were booked in for, they'd probably just not show up. Transport Secretary, and like if the vision from the Avengers had anemia, Chris Grayling, has said the rail industry has failed passengers, but actually it's a lot more likely that the Department of Transport has failed passengers by consistently giving contracts to companies that are inefficient at running rail services. The East Coast Rail Line is temporarily renationalised due to Virgin Rail expensively cocking up and being paid full whack to do so. But why only temporarily? Renationalisation, especially of the railways, is a very popular opinion around the country, and while I wouldn't trust Chris Grayling to run a brio set, at least there would have to be accountability from his department, and as the public use and pay for it, it would make a lot of sense for us to own it as well. Labour have been campaigning for nationalising public services for the past few years now, but since these bad signals from the railways, yes, pun intended, and the collapse of Carillion in January threatening 450 government contracts, nationalisation is an idea that now seems even more sensible. Many have warned that returning services to public ownership would be costly, but mainly because it would require buying out contracts from companies that they were previously sold to. So it's a bit like saying it would be too costly to safely remove the giant bulldog they installed to guard your front door without your permission or want, so you may as well deal with it and stay indoors for the rest of your life spending money you don't have on dog food deliveries. And yes, I, like you, do worry about the public being in charge of everything, and isn't there just a chance that everything will be called Rayleigh McRailface or Gassy McGasface or Royal Mailey McMailface and so on, but really, that seems to me, an uninformed idiot, like the only reason not to do it. 
Am I right? Well, this week I spoke to Ellen Lees at We Own It, a campaign for public ownership. They have successfully blocked the government's attempts to sell the land registry, NHS professionals and network rail, and are currently looking into ways to affordably renationalise both the rail service and water suppliers. Ellen very kindly took the time to explain to me how and why that should all happen. Now, I'm afraid this week, on this week's interview, there is a return to... Excuses. But it's not a bad one. Um, it's simply that where Ellen was, um, wherever she was talking to me from, had a lot of background noise. And we repeatedly had to stop because, for example, someone started doing the hoovering uh, in the middle of our chat. So there's some pretty obvious edit points in here because really there was no other way to do it as hoovers are very hard to remove, which I suppose makes sense. So they sort of suck themselves up and that'd be a terrible design. Anyway, however, what is important is all of Ellen's good chat remains complete, if slightly occasionally badly edited. So I hope you enjoy and here is Ellen. I wanted to ask about the, uh, the the government's now looking at the collapse of Carillion um, and they're talking about whether their kind of risk uh, assessment, you know, stages should be readjusted or all that. And Labour are kind of saying maybe we need to uh, renationalise more of our public services. Um, do you think that is going to happen or do you think that we need to see more fallouts like Carillion before any major renationalisation occurs? Well, it's hard to say what the what this government's going to going to do, um, but I would say that the collapse of Carillion wasn't a, a special case, um, and that outsourcing companies, things like Serco, Capita, Atos, um, they've got a history of failures, and the, I think Serco and Capita have both issued profit warnings recently. Um, there's concerns about the level of debt they have, the CEO pay. Um, so these sort of generalised outsourcing companies that take contracts from the government, um, we already know that they're unreliable. So Carillion's collapse was called a watershed moment in that I think it did change the way that the sort of national conversation about outsourcing and privatisation happened. It was definitely sort of on the agenda more than before. Um, but the Conservative government doesn't seem to have changed its behaviour because of that. So do you think that this, I mean, it really looks like this might be the Carillion was one of a possible many? Definitely, yes. Yeah, yeah I think so. And what, what led to Carillion's collapse? I mean, why didn't anybody notice it before? Or why wasn't it more, uh, why weren't the public more aware that that was going to happen beforehand? Well, I'm not sure about the details of, of sort of Carillion's management and its policies, but the thing about outsourcing um, especially to these big organisations that take on too many contracts and have these really risky financial strategies, is that um, it's a really untrustworthy way to be running public services. It might be fine for the private sector where people are willing to take on the risk and they pay for that risk, um, and that's how the market works. But for something like providing school meals and uh, you know cleaning services for hospitals, these are things that have to happen whether someone's paying for them or not. Um, and so relying on a private company that's trying to make a profit in this way for those kinds of services is just always going to be a bad idea. Uh, does that, I mean, the, the thing that I always find it hard to get my head around is how are they, you know, they're, they're running public services. How on earth are they making profit? That does just mean that they are making efficiency cuts wherever possible. Is that right? Yes. I mean, if they're not charging higher prices for it, then they must be making cuts somewhere, whether that's to staff or processes or equipment. And so does that mean, I mean, like, does it save money? You know, I, I, the part of the thing is I can never understand why the government would choose that over public, uh, doing it publicly. Does it save the government money to have it as a privatised company? So the, the people say that it can save money in the short term because um, you get private capital to invest in the services so the government doesn't have to finance it themselves. But this argument ignores the fact that private companies finance things through borrowing and they have higher interest rates than a public company would so it's more expensive to borrow for a private company than it is for the government to borrow um, and then they also pay dividends to shareholders so a chunk of your income will be going to the shareholders every every year um, so it, it, it seems like a, a good solution to save money in the short term I think um, sometimes but even then uh, you know, this this ignores the sort of the private debt that builds up. The water industry was privatised in, in the late 80s 
um, from the regional public water companies. And when they were sold to the private companies, their debt was wiped completely. So these private companies got these wonderful, clean companies with no debt. And since then, they have uh, they, they've made money through, through our water bills. And all of that money has gone out in dividends to shareholders. Any investment that they made in pipes, in improving the infrastructure and anything, has come from borrowing. So they've built up another debt mountain of, I think it's got to something like £42 billion. Um, they, they make about $1.8 billion in pre-tax profits every year on average, and they pay out an average of $1.8 billion to shareholders every year. God, that is horrific. I... I mean, that's really. I mean, what uh, and and I, uh, one of the ones I found out uh, about recently, which I didn't realize, was about Virgin Care and how Virgin Care never ever pays any tax mm. uh, because it's always owing another company owned by Richard Branson money, and then they own another company until there's sort of thirteen of them. And and it, I'm guessing that's just the case in in most situations, is it? Well, it's different for every sector, and I, I can't say that you know no company that runs a public service pays any tax. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know that for certain. But uh, but yeah, there are plenty of ways to avoid that sort of thing, and they do tend to take advantage of them. As, and, and and a lot of the times, this is at the. I know we sort of briefly mentioned it, but it is at the cost of the services as well. I mean, we've seen that with Carillion, where tons of things were just dropped uh, when they went under. But uh, there's there's quite a lot. I mean, like for example, in the water industry, how how has that affected how the public get their water? You know, would we have noticed anything different? Well, we've noticed that the um, you know the pipes, the, the sewage works, and things haven't had the investment that they need, um, and this is true all over the world. According to David Hall, who does a lot of research on water privatisation, um, there's a trend of cities and, and countries taking their waters back into public ownership because the citizens haven't seen any benefit from privatisation, where they can at the same time they can see a really visible benefit. Um, to the shareholders, right? Okay, so it's it's it yeah. Basically, we're paying more, but absolutely not gaining anything for it yes. whatsoever. Yeah. So that was a bit obscure. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Um, and is that? I mean, the, the, I wanted to ask you sort of. Um, I know there's a lot of specific cases, but like generally, is do you think the UK is is weird in the high level of things that are privatised? Because I'm often quite shocked to kind of realise when things are being run by companies as opposed to by the state yeah i mean i i don't know the, f the figures sort of worldwide but we are definitely up there with the amount of services that that have been privatized and this is mostly from um you know back in the 80s the sort of reagan and thatcher area era um that ideology that the private sector is more efficient um just sort of hasn't been challenged for the last 30 odd years um which has led to yeah this complete decimation of our public services basically but that's got to be changed because i mean nationalization is constantly a popular issue like whenever that you know i regularly see the public want things to be renationalized especially like we, we look at the um railways which have been in the news again recently but the public always want that to be renationalized mm -hmm. it's got to be uh it's weird that it's that opinion is so constantly ignored yeah, I mean, so the, for the figures, you've got 76% um, of the public want rail in public ownership, 84% want healthcare, 81% for schools, um, and 83% for water. Um, and these, yeah, these figures have been consistently high. I think the level of support for public ownership of water when it was privatised was at around 70%. Um, but, I mean... I don't really have an explanation for this, but I feel like the successive governments since Thatcher have bought into this ideology that private is better and more efficient. And that's a myth that's never really been proven. Um, and it's starting to be challenged now with the new Labour manifesto. And it's and, and also well, that was the, the thing, isn't it? Where uh, Chris Grading renationalised uh, the East Coast Rail Line, which uh, Labour sort of quite, uh, took a lot of credit for. Um, and uh, but I mean, he's already Chris Grading's already said that he hopes to have it reprivatised within a couple of years. Um, do you think that? It, do you think that we could get the railway line renationalised? Do you think that it's likely that it's more going to be just this is a temporary measure? How do you feel about it? Yeah. Well, the the thing with that. Renationalisation, that decision, and about Chris Grayling really, is that he 
he's especially ideological from what I've heard. He's quite a stubborn person. Um, and he really did not want to take that option. So we campaigned quite hard because we knew that there were two options for the East Coastline. It was either this uh, bring it into public control or handing the franchise straight back to Stagecoach. So we did a, a, a sort of three-month-long campaign at least to get him to choose this option and backed him into a corner. Um, and obviously a lot of different factors affected his decision, but I personally don't think he would have made that decision if he'd had any other option. Um, and he did couch that announcement in uh, talk about his new plan for 2020 and to have it reprivatized. And the fact is that there are still private companies involved in this new franchise arrangement, the London Northeastern Railway. Um, it will be run within the Department for Transport, but companies like Arup, Ernst & Young, and something called SNC-Lavalin will be involved in actually running the functions. So it's not really being renationalized at all in... in in the sort of broader sense of it, anyway. I wouldn't call it renationalised without qualifying that in some way. Um, I think you can say it's in the public control. But this is a good step in the right direction. I think from here, we can show that the Department of Transport has the capacity to run a railway, um, which was a worry for a while that it just had lost that completely. Um, and that, you know, and this is a, it's an easier step now to start taking other failing franchises back in-house. We've been talking today about Thameslink, um, and Northern losing their franchise because of their failures to implement the new timetable. Um, so that, I think there's definitely opportunities. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And we'll be back with Ellen in a minute. But first... Hardly Global Broadcast. Schadenfreude is a beautiful thing, and while it's been the UK's greatest export for the last two years, and something we should really charge for, as many other countries can gloat and point, ha ha ha, look at the mess they're in, we're feeling alright, it is nice to occasionally import a little bit back. This week, to save you from dwelling on the fact that the UK is currently being run by the first government who are likely to be eligible for a collective Darwin Award, here is a bit of info on recent events in Italy. If you remember back in episode 92 in February, I spoke to correspondent for The Economist, John Hooper, just prior to the Italian elections. And he explained quite a lot about the Italian economy, why things were going why they were, why populist movements were surging, and how the results of that election were going to be pretty unpredictable. If you haven't heard that, go do it now. I'll wait. I'm still waiting. Okay, well done. That was, I mean, you listened to that incredibly quick. That was literally in minutes. What speed did you have that on? Bonkers. Anyway, John Hooper wasn't wrong, and what's happened after those election results have been even more unpredictable than the election itself. No party outright won the elections on March the 4th, but the two largest winners were the Five Star Movement, a populist, mostly left-wing environmental party with weirdly right-wing views on immigration, and Liga, or the League, who are super far-right with worse views on immigration and everything else. Five Star is led by Luigi Di Maio, a man that looks like a stock photo model for office pranks, and Lega by Matteo Salvini, who is a big Trump and Putin fan and looks like he makes an exceptionally loud noise every time he sits down or picks anything up. Both groups are hugely anti-establishment, which is problematic when you become the establishment. And also, they weren't really up for working together or with anyone in a coalition, which is problematic when you're in a coalition and have to work with people. As you can see, there were a lot of problems. 
But, like all good buddy movies, despite their differences, the Riggs and Murtaugh of politics, Five Star being Riggs because they're a bit unhinged, and Lego being Murtaugh because all their policies should really retire, they finally managed to work together. It took nearly 90 days, but they chose Giuseppe Conti as Prime Minister, a 53-year-old law professor no one had really heard of, including me. I still have absolutely no idea who he is. During the election, both parties sounded pretty Eurosceptic, with Five Star at one point wanting a referendum to leave the Eurozone, which they then backtracked on. The League also talked about leaving the Euro, but some of the top members rejected that idea, and as a result, none of them campaigned on that policy. But then, in their negotiations about working together, they proposed a finance minister called Paolo Savona, who looks a lot like an angry Penfold, and is so Eurosceptic that he said the Euro is just designed to help Germany, and the Italians have not benefited in any way from 20 years of having the currency. Alright mate, a bit harsh. Not in any way at all. Not even in not having to change your money at the airport when visiting other Euro countries. I mean, that would save you minutes of time. Not even in that the lira had silly, silly denominations, so you'd keep thinking you had loads of money, but you definitely didn't. I mean, there was a thousand lira coin. Do you remember that? You could be a millionaire and still have shit clothes and not be able to afford stuff. Rubbish. Savona said the euro was a German cage, which isn't right, as it can't really keep anything in it, not having any bars or a visible entrance. Uh, it's a currency, and that's probably how the Germans responded. He warned that if Italy stayed in the EU, it was going to go like Greece, aka screwed in a way that even the ancient Greeks didn't enjoy. Anyway, Savona's chat got the credit agencies scared, who threatened that if Savona was the finance minister and that this proposed government is the government, then they are going to ruin Italy money-wise. And the president of Italy, Sergio Mattarella, a man who looks disturbingly like if Dr Strangelove had survived, approved all the proposed ministers except Savona. This is not because the president has ever entirely ruled out Italy leaving the euro, but because he wants, as he said, an open and deep debate about it, rather than, you know, angry Penfold's open plans to just drop it while saying the Germans are still Nazis. I mean, come on, you want a slightly more tactful minister than that, right? I mean, where do they think they are? America. This blocking of the ministerial choice by the president meant the Five Star Movement and the League got even more angry about the establishment and the EU than they were before than they were before. Luigi Di Maio, the leader of Five Star, has already complained about what the point of going to vote is if the credit agencies and the EU pick your government anyway. He then demanded Mattarella was impeached and he posted a picture on Facebook of him eating a pizza saying it was the sort of pizza a certain EU official could only dream of. Which is an odd form of taunting, especially when your country is the one in need of dough. The president then went to a former International Monetary Fund exec director, Carlo Cottarelli, about perhaps leading a technocratic government, even though they had one of those from 2011 to 2013, led by Mario Monti, who was an economist and not a politician, and the whole experience led to the Five Star becoming more popular in the first place. So this recent meeting could have led to another election, which likely would have led to further gains from the League and Five Star, which really wouldn't have led to much difference, because they might still not have campaigned on changing from the Euro back to the Lira, and therefore there'd just have been even more of this mayhem and even more chaos and even even more time without a government. However, by threatening to go to Carlo Cottarelli, President Mattarella forced the parties to look for another finance minister. And you sort of think, damn, that president was smart, and if this was a sitcom, there'd be some sort of moral message right now, while Mattarella gave a knowing look to camera. Giovanni Tria was named finance minister on June the 1st, and while he has many policies that are in alignment with Lega, he does want Italy to stick with the Euro, which has calmed the credit agencies a tad and allowed the two parties to form a government. Five Star Leader, which sounds like he's been rated well on TripAdvisor but hasn't, Di Maio, also apologised to the President for calling him a traitor, but there's still no news on whether German officials can have a pizza or not. So there is now a government in Italy and it's probably the most nationalistic populist one in Europe right now. Their economic outlook is hugely wobbly and there are serious issues with employment, inequality, the refugee crisis and growing sexism. So whether or not two parties who could barely work together can fix all those things is yet to be seen. Unless, of course, if Gary Boosie shows up, then I bet they would ruin him. And the Italian government's ideas of EU reform are very, very different to Merkel and Macron's, which may lead to some serious clashes in the Eurozone. Either way, for now, Italy remains stuck inside the German cage, which instantly is the name of my horror novel. Good luck, Italy. If nothing else, by default, you have a government in the five-star league, which sounds great for tourists. Although, judging by their immigration stances, it probably actually isn't so much. And now, back to Ellen. And there's been quite a few... Um, I've heard about quite a few sort of local councils, um, particularly in, like, Preston, who've... Uh, and, and local communities that have started their own... Like, you mentioned the water uh, around... The, you know, places taking that back into um, mm. local control. Um, is that the kind of... Do you think that's the best way forward at the moment? I mean, until we have some sort of change of government or a change of ideology overall, is, is that something that we're... 
is that the best way for people to renationalise things? Yeah, in terms of um, you know changing the ownership of things, I think um, Preston is basically mostly based on um, cooperatives, as far as I know. Um, which, from our position, cooperatives are a fantastic um, alternative to privatisation and work really well in the private sector. But I think that for public services, um, it can be better to have, uh, you know, local government or national government control rather than a group of workers or a group of citizens, just to ensure that you have that sort of universal accountability to everyone um, through, you know, democratic mechanisms and things like that. So there are examples of things like uh, Nottingham, Nottingham City Transport, which is a, a local council-owned bus network. They've also got Robin Hood Energy. Um, and then Bristol has Bristol Energy. Um, so there are examples of local councils sort of creating their own companies and competing with private companies um, to provide services for, for local people. And, and how does that work cost-wise? Because one of the arguments always used against nationalisation is that the cost of now renationalising things is going to be too much. Um, you know, that's one of the things that's always thrown at mm. Labour, for example, when they bring it up. I mean, how's that working for those councils? If starting up their own energy companies must have been really tough. Yeah, I mean, it's different for every service, um, how to make it sort of financially viable. Um, I think Robinhood Energy had a, a long-term plan that involved them not being profitable for the first few years. Um, but if you think about it, like investing in an asset, um, like any other asset, you put some money in and over the years you get that money back through, um, you know, energy uh, bills and things like this. Um, and I'd much rather be paying my energy bill to a local council who will keep my bills down and prioritise renewable energy sources um, and maybe cross-subsidise households who can't afford their energy. Oh, absolutely, definitely. Um, and is that, is that something, I mean, you know, in the way that these local councils have done it, can you, you know, can, can people do it themselves if the listeners kind of listening just want to, you know, um, campaign for renationalising certain services in their area? Is there something that they can do? Is there a way to start your own kind of localisation schemes? Um, I mean, if you want to follow the, the Preston model, there's plenty of, of ways to start cooperatives and things, but um, that's not really my expertise area of expertise but I think for public services the best thing to do would be um, to get involved with your local council um, so we just ran a, a campaign before the local elections to get councillors to sign our pledge to end privatisation in their communities um, and we've now got a list of councillors who've been elected who signed the pledge um, and we're going to ask them to send us stories about the things that they managed to bring back in house or if they managed to stop something being out outsourced um, so I think that's the, the way to go at the moment is to sort of increase the capacity of local councils who have been forced to outsource pretty much since the financial crash and since austerity was imposed um, because they just haven't had control over the size of their own budgets. Um, and now the worry is that they don't have the capacity to, to run those services anymore. So I think it's a really, really important that local people get involved with their councils and tell them that it's very important to them that, they, you know, we own and control our own services. So I, I know you've been working on the idea of renationalising um, the the water supplies. How would that work? And uh, again, is that is that something that's actually plausible to do in the UK? Yeah. So the the UK water industry is actually unique in the world. Um, no other country has the privatised water system that we do. Other privatised water systems are more like long term contracts. Um, whereas we just sold off everything, the land, the pipes, um, everything. But we can take it back, and um, this would involve basically buying back the water companies, which people have worried would be very expensive, um, and there have been all sorts of scary reports from think tanks telling us that it would cost billions of pounds. Um, in truth, the government can decide how much to compensate shareholders for their shares in these companies, um, and they don't have to compensate them at the market value. They can compensate them at the value that the shares were bought for in the first place, if they decide that that's reasonable. Um, and then if you take into account the debt that was wiped at the beginning when the companies were bought in the first place. So that, that's quite a lot of money, basically, that, that, that would take off the cost. And this could it, that does make it sound a lot more affordable when you put it like that. Yeah, and then if you think about it like a simple investment in an asset, um, 
it would be a wise investment that would bring in about £2.3 billion every year um, just through, uh, through water bills. So it would pay for itself within about 10 years. Um, so it's really not as expensive as some people are making it out to seem. No, that makes it sound incredibly plausible, actually. And is that, um, you know, on, on a similar kind of thing, does, would renationalising the railways then therefore have a similar... Is there a similar route to that like you would with the waterways as well? So renationalising the railways is actually even easier. Um, because the railways were never sold entirely, they're run on a franchise system. So all we have to do is wait for the franchises to come to an end and bring them back in-house at the end, which would cost no money at all. Um, and Network Rail already runs the track and the stations, so we just have to, one by one, bring the franchises back in-house to be run by the Department for Transport, which would gradually increase its capacity as it uh, picked up more franchises. And, and I mean, also, it would a horribly shallow thing to ask, but it is what in a lot of people's is what it is what is in a lot of people's minds. Were the rail service being renationalised, would that mean ticket prices, in theory, could come down? Yes, definitely. Um, I have a number for this as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <cool>. So, <laughs> if our railway was run in public ownership, we'd save around 1.2 billion per year, which could fund a. 18% cut in rail fares if we choose to use the money that way. That's because we wouldn't be paying shareholders um, and we'd save a lot of money on the the fragmentation of the railway. So at the moment, the fact that we've got these 16 different franchise operators who are all trying to talk to network rail and sort out their signal failures and their track replacements, it's a really inefficient system and it's the reason that network rail sometimes has issues with getting things done on time because they're trying to cooperate with 16 competing companies essentially. Um, that fragmentation would be cleared up if everything was run under one roof and we'd save a lot of money. So just When you put it like that, it just makes no sense that we're not that the government aren't planning to do that, considering, you know, we've heard all the stuff about how we need to, you know, save money and we've had years of austerity. Mm. Something like this would have given us uh, a load of money back very quickly. Yeah, I mean, well, that's the thing. Austerity has always always been a political choice and they tried to, uh, to, to sell it to us as a necessity, but um, it's a choice between letting citizens sort of figure things out for themselves and having private companies running our services and, you know, being sensible about the way that we use public money. Yeah, it's, but it's, it's strange, isn't it, that that sort of... Uh, that was an ideology, but it was also... Um you know, David Cameron's early part of austerity was that we're all in this together and big society, but actually nationalising something is proper big society in a very sensible sort of way of doing it. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's so much opportunity with public ownership of services to really get citizens involved in their services, especially locally. Um, so it doesn't have to be this big, scary state machine that nobody can influence. It, we can deliberately make it more democratic and more accountable and cooperative. Sounds great. Um, and uh, one last question, which is something that I ask uh, all the guests, really, is apart from uh, We Own It, um, what other campaign groups, journalists or websites or whatever would you recommend that listeners check out um, if they'd like to find out more about the dangers of privatisation and the benefits of public ownership? So many. Um, I'll do a really quick cheeky plug that specifically on the dangers of privatisation, we have a section of our website called Privatisation Fails, where we try and catalogue um, the failures of different private companies in different sectors. But in terms of other people, um, we've got Open Democracy. Um, it has a fantastic section on public services, um, especially on the NHS. Uh, Left Foot Forward is a uh, sort of online newspaper that does that has a public services section. Um, We've used the reports by Corporate Watch on um, social care and on water and a few of our things, which have been really useful. Um, and I've mentioned earlier David Hall at the Greenwich, University of Greenwich Public Services International Research Unit, um, who's done some fantastic stuff on water and energy. Uh, we've got People versus PFI, which is a campaign group against the private finance initiatives that we own. It doesn't really touch on. Uh, Neon does some great reports, New Economic Organisers Network and the New Economics Foundation Connected, I think. Um, and the Transnational Institute is the organisation that published the report on 
all of the wave of remunicipalizations, the sort of bringing things back into local public ownership around the world. Thank you to Ellen for that chat. We Own It can be found at weownit.org.uk where they have a lot of handy guides such as 10 reasons to end privatisation and lists of all the publicly owned services in the UK. It is well worth a look. Um, they're also on Twitter at we underscore own it as well and they're on Facebook as well at the We Own It campaign. All the other links Ellen recommends will be up on the website page for the episode at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk at some point soonish too. As always, if you have someone you'd like me to interview or a subject you think I should interview someone about, please holler at me on the at Parpolbro Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group that I never update, partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com or the contact page on the website. The only way it would be easier to contact me, really, I've given you so many options, uh, would be if I got 40 foot high antennae surgically attached to my head for you to directly beam recommendations and requests straight into my brain. And I'm not doing that as it would make wearing a cap really hard and probably ruin my Freeview TV and phone reception. So please think of my headgear choice limitation and just email. It would be much easier. Downloading, listening or just accidentally catching part of it because the person next to you on the bus has their phone turned up way, way too loud. Please do review the show on all your favourite pod apps and if you can, donate to the Patreon. Let's get to $200 or to the ko-fi.com forward slash bro. Every single penny helps, which isn't true. Pennies are pretty useless in today's world, apart from like you putting them in your eyes and scaring children and you only need two for that. If you've been using more than two, you don't need the pennies to scare children. You have scary eyes. Fact. Thank you to Acast for keeping this show in its pack, despite me never contributing towards hunting for ear food. And thanks to my brother, The Last Skeptic, for the music, even though I could really do with some new beats from him, but uh, and I keep asking, but he is way too busy giving them to proper artists for money for his proper job. What a bastard. Uh, this will be back next week when I'll be looking into David Davis's suggestion that the Irish border could just be the friends that we made along the way. Bye! This week's show is brought to you by Hornby's special commemorative Chris Grayling set. Only £200 for a set of tracks, digital signals and station signs with a range of terrible excuses for all your cancelled journeys. Only a bus is provided, trains are not included and must be purchased separately from a number of other providers who can take up to three years to deliver and may incur further costs. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.